Are you ready for operational excellence? Welcome to the Visual Workplace, Work That Makes Sense, where your host and visual workplace expert, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, shares powerful visual principles and practices to optimize your operations and make them safer, faster, better, and far less costly. The Visual Workplace. You can't get to excellence without it. Now, here's Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. Hi. Welcome. Hello. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth. Welcome to Visual Workplace Radio. I am your host on this, our weekly radio show, about letting the workplace speak. In each of our shows, we look at some aspect of that, of how to embed the intelligence of our operational system into the living dynamic landscape of work through visual devices, through visual systems, how to install the language of our current level of operational excellence, even if we're not quite as excellent as we wish we would be or as we know we will be. We install that level, we make it concrete and specific through visual devices, through visual solutions, through physical mechanisms. And when we do, we can literally see what we think in the operational details and we can predict how that thinking will function. We see it happening. It's responsive. And why do we bother? Why do we bother to let the workplace speak? We do it for, first of all, great bottom line benefits in terms of improved safety, quality, more aligned delivery time, shrinking costs, wazzer. And two, we do it for the splendid cultural alignment. When you create a language of operations, it unifies people, it connects them. The result is a spirited and engaged a contributing workforce on all levels, not just the CEO, but the operator, not just the operator, but the marketing function, planning, scheduling. And third, we enjoy ourselves at work. That's why we bother, so that we go to work in order to enjoy ourselves. We are in a flow, we're contributing, we are awake, we want to be there, and the people around us want to be there too. Lots and lots of wonderful reasons for going visual, for getting visual, for letting the workplace speak. So welcome. Thank you for taking time. I really mean it. In your busy day, everything is accelerating. Thank you for taking this time to listen in. And I hope you find this very productive and maybe even useful to your daily work. It is meant to be that way. So we're in the middle of a series right now. It's called The Hero Within. And it's about this notion or this opportunity, this vision of when people come to work, they actually can be making a contribution and they can feel that they are part of an excellence journey. They feel the excellence within them. They see the excellence around them. They are contributing. They're creating. They are cultivating this. They are They are part of it. They feel heroic at work, that they can meet the obstacles, that they can be victorious, that they can make their contribution. Hmm? Heroes at work. And if you remember in our first show, which was three uh, three shows ago, our first show in the series, I talked about what would the possibility be or what would it be like if managers and CEOs, the whole executive level, took on as a vision of their outcome as making their direct reports heroes, that they, to be a hero of one's own life, to be a hero of one's own work life. What would it be like if that became the kind of slogan, emblem, vision, codification of what we're about this year or maybe for the next three years. Taiji Ono said it this way. He said, you know what? People don't come to Toyota to work. They come to think. That was the way that he encapsulated both the outcome and the vision of what he wanted. He wanted people to come to Toyota to think because that was a plus. It was a pleasure. It was flow. It was contribution. It was meaningful. Last week, I talked about the power of the I, that if you want to create this kind of transformation that is really people-centered, human-centered, 
it has to be individually centered. It has to be placed or focused on the identity of the person, on the power of the will. And we talked about how when you liberate information, you liberate the human will. And the reverse is also true. When information is not available, when it is hidden, secreted away, unavailable, inaccurate, incomplete, not there, we do the opposite of being empowered. We are disempowered. We are struggling. We are compressed. And we're either combative, angry combative, or angry indifferent. Two sides of the same coin. It has huge, this power of the I, this identity, has huge implications for the company and for the individual. And we talked about the power of the I. Today, what I want to put together is really describe this journey of the I and how the I, and if you remember last week, we we talked about the need to know question. What do I need to know that I don't know right now in order to do my work? Let me answer that question in the form of a visual device so that the answer is embedded in my workplace and I can pull it to me, towards me, when and as I need it. Visuality is a pull system because it is developing the language of the need to know and answering questions, attacking in that way the enemy, which is information deficits, what I described a moment ago, the uh, missing answers. So let me walk you through the journey of the I. And if you remember, I talked to you about uh, culture as being identity's mirror, that your mirror, your culture really is a reflection of the individual multiplied, multiplied by the individuals that surround him. So as I walk you through this journey, we're going to play with these two questions, and they will seem sequential. I will begin with the need to know. Sorry, I didn't mention the second question. What do I need to share? Those are the two driving questions of the visual workplace. This is not methodology. This is conceptual. It's not quite a principle. It's a leverage point. It's kind of a dynamic. What do I need to know that I don't know right now in order to do my work? Let me answer it. Let me put translate the answer into a visual device and put it, locate that device where I need that information so I can pull it to me when and as I need it. And the second question is, what do I need to share? What do I know that other people need to know that I need to share in order for them to do their work, do it more safely, do it in better quality, do it uh, on time, do it more safely? What do I need to share? All right. So as this begins, and, and let me just... I think I want to set up two more pieces of the mechanics so I can refer to it freely in our discussion. So let me just set up motion and the value field. You've heard me talk about this before because I talk about it constantly. So motion is the symptom of missing information. Motion is moving without working. It is wandering and wondering and counting First level of motion, counting again, checking, double-checking. Second level of motion, it is all of the interruptions, all of the asking and answering of questions because that is the way we attempt to fill in the missing answers by asking questions and getting the answer this one time from that individual and then going back tomorrow or in 15 minutes and asking another question and interrupting. I call it motion sickness because it usually spreads from one person to another. Hey, Marianne, do you know what time the mail is being picked up? No, but let me ask George. Hey, George, do you know what time the mail is? No, Gwen, I don't know. I don't know. I'm sorry. No, Marianne, I don't know. But I will ask Jose. Hey, Jose, do you know what time the mail is picking up? Wait a second. I will get up and go over and blah, 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 blah. Motion sickness. It is a contamination that is spread from person to person in the form of these questions, and these are also interruptions. Do you remember I said when we first began this conversation, um, January, six or seven months ago, I guess it was six or seven months ago now, yeah, when we first began this conversation that 
it takes, the research shows that it takes us 10, us meaning me, us meaning you, us meaning anybody else. It takes one of us and all of us 10 to 12 minutes to recover from an interruption, any interruption, however long, however short. That doesn't mean to get back to work. That means to get back to the level of work we were at before the interruption, the level of focus, the level of intention, the level of of targeted awareness. It takes us 10 to 12 minutes to get back to it. This has very serious implications for anything that requires quality attention, attention about the quality. So it's important to keep track of your interruptions. If we have time, I'll give you a little exercise. I may have given it to you before. I'll give it to you again for you to actually track it and use use it as a motion metric. How many times do I ask questions? How many times am I asked questions? It's a very, very good metric. So motion is activity. It is our body moving through time and space, my feet, my hands, my mouth that opens and asks the questions. I am physically involved in motion. It might be just picking up a telephone. It might be the motion of searching in my uh, computer. But it's nevertheless physical. This isn't mind stuff. This is actual. Which makes very interesting to talk about the value field because motion, because it's physical, is location-based. So the value field is where you do that thing that is not motion, which is add value. Another word for that is where you do your work. And this is really good language to be precise about if you're working with supervisors or working with operators. What is your work? Where do you add value? What is your value field? You are always in motion when you leave your value field, the place where you add value. That's pretty simple, isn't it? For example, a surgeon, his primary value field in the surgery room is the patient on the operating table, on the table, and all motion is measured from that point. He or she, the surgeon, may uh, may go to supporting value fields, what we call secondary value fields, in order to get the instruments or wash hands or to check stats or to check this or check that, but his main, his primary value field Her primary value field is the patient, him or herself, open, lying on the table, that's vivid, that's clear. (laughs) It's the same if you're a machinist. It's the same if you're a nurse. You can be many places in support of your work, but the work itself happens at an exact point. That's called your value field. Name it, measure your motion from there, because anytime you leave it, you are already in motion. So it's a really good anchor point. Motion disappears, evaporates the instant you put the instant you put a visual device in place that holds an answer to an information deficit that triggered your motion. That's the way visuality works. That's the way the language uh, is created. That's how to make the contribution. That is its power. And the power is in the multiples as you invent more and more visual solutions. I'm I'm gonna illustrate this through uh, the work of a friend of mine, wonderful, wonderful visual master thinker, uh, Stuart Bellamy. He worked at Brandt for a number of years. This was a low-volume hype mix company. They made earth movers, massive, individually designed. They had a billion dollars in sales 10 years ago, about 1,200 employees. And Stuart focused exactly on making, helping people become scientists of their motion. And he recounted to me this story that an individual, uh, an operator said. He said, the operator came up to Stuart one day and said, hey, you know what? I I spend at least five minutes a day looking for my tools or parts or information or waiting for them and or just sometimes wandering around. And I added that up. Do you know what? I added up all those five minutes every hour and I lost almost 20 days last year because of this, 19.6 days. And you know what? There are 200 of me on this floor. That means last year, 
If they're like me and not worse than me, but like me, that means we together lost 31,360 hours last year. (laughs) On five minutes here, five minutes there. It was a brilliant observation and calculation. Stuart did wonderful work. And I'm just going to quote some specs on one of his studies. He did his visuality. The process became more visual. The production velocity increased. The assembly space before was 11,200 square feet. After was 4,800 square feet. The throughput used to be before two per week. That became eight per week. The production line sorry, the production time used to be 250 plus hours on average. It became 124 hours, cut cut in half. The yard storage, which was important to this company because they had a big footprint, was, was 5,000 square feet and it was virtually eliminated in his after. His after was about six or eight months. And the team involvement was good before, but it was immeasurably improved as the team members became visual thinkers and scientists of their own motion. Okay, so that's the dynamic. So let me take you through the journey because otherwise I won't do it. I'm going to go down a rabbit hole and we're, we're not going to move off this time. Let me take you through this journey about how visuality works on a conceptual level. You'll get the financial benefits, but right now we're focused on the culture as a doorway to financial benefits and a, a doorway to an engaged workforce, a contributing workforce. So as the implementation of visuality deepens and spread, there is a parallel journey as the physical workplace begins to evolve and change. There is a parallel journey or evolution, if you will, of the individual, what I call the I. The I moves from struggling to strong to uniform. I'm sorry, that's the wrong word. To unified. From struggling to strong to unified. And I want to explain, these are three distinct phases. And you see like spring coming to the countryside outside of your window. You see this budding and then flourishing of the growth and the life there as though a tree is changing through the seasons. Bare, brown during the winter, no leaves, little buds coming out, the blood, the buds growing, the buds blossoming, the buds giving flower, the buds in full bloom in the summer, giving fruit in the fall. It's exquisite. It is noticeable. People change, and you can see it, feel it, and it shows in the performance. So phase one, so I'm going to talk to you about two big chunks, phase one and phase two. And they're going to hold within them need to know question phase one, need to know question, need to share question phase two. The company recognizes that struggling eyes, struggling individuals exist, and they're having a detrimental impact on enterprise excellence. So the company initiates a visual rollout or conversion as a remedy. The struggling eye begins because the methodology begins with getting control of your corner of the world. We do that through the visual wear, borders, addresses, and if possible, an ID label. Wait for it, for everything that casts a shadow. That's the criteria. It's criteria-based. It's very clear for everything that casts a shadow. If it casts a shadow, it's going to get a border and an address and, if possible, an ID label. Okay? And as a result, the individual gains control over their corner of the world. That's phase one. Okay? And what happens during that time, as I described last week, is that takes a lot of the stress off. And with the stress off, the eye grows. 
the struggling I sees himself, herself, as a victim of the system, blaming others for an array of woes and troubles, feeling powerless to change things. And some people don't blame, they simply go numb. Go numb or go ballistic. Struggling eyes reflect a mindset that could be described as passive-reactive or codependent, but it is not free. It is not free and it is not contributing. It is very, very absorbed in what is not right, what's going wrong, how the system is failing them, how you're failing them. And so when we begin with the need to know and we focus on this control, which is the purpose of the visual wear. I'm talking on the operator level. We can do a parallel. I Believe me, we can do a parallel. I'm working with executives now about their need to know, gaining control, gaining clarity on the direction, pace, destination, and mechanisms of improvement. I can do it with, with CEOs as well and with supervisors, but we'll do it through operators. You make the parallels. They are there. Okay, they're there. So the struggling eye begins to translate the need to know into visual devices, and they gain control over their corner of the world physically. That struggling eye gains strength, the individual, and grows fairly independent and proud of his role in that cell, in that department. As the individual gains control of his or her corner of the world, that individual sees themselves as independent and also a contributor. They're on board. Okay? Phase one is the need to know, and people come up. They get control. The only time you have to begin with the second question, what do I need to share, is when you have deep, deep veteran employees who have been there 30 or 40 years. Then you begin with the need to share. They help others, and they back into the need to know. But they're so expert, it's very hard for them to see what they need to know because they are so expert. Their Their expertise has been internalized. Remember my story about Ted at the beginning who worked at this aerospace company? He's the one who said, you know, essentially, will I be the hero of my own life? And after 27 years, he said it didn't happen. So we call these folks struggling eyes. And we know something of such employees. We know that their individual sense of self has often suffered many attacks, eroding their self-esteem and their ability to trust. We know that. And as a result, they act in a way, a variety of noticeable ways. Some are cynical, some are non-cooperative, others are downright nasty and belligerent. That's like Charlie, I told you about Charlie. They're angry. Still others, as I say, are indifferent, unresponsive, non-committal, they're numb. If you ask the angry ones what's wrong, they will often say that the system is dumb or management doesn't know what it's doing or is ruining the company. Stupid things happen, they say, and we can't do anything to stop them. No one will listen to us. You've heard this. The people who are indifferent, who are indifferent they, they, they claim that they don't care. They will, be, they will ask to be left alone. Stupid things happen, they say. And they can't do anything to stop them. Companies got it wrong, if they are talking to you at all. People from either group tend to see their work lives as out of control and see themselves as hapless victims of a badly run system. Many times they're right. The company is badly run. Dumb things do happen a lot. People do seem powerless to change things. Too much Goes wrong too often. Big things are little things. Working seems more like walking on shifting sand than marching firmly and purposefully forward. You know you have been there. You know what I mean. The entire system, the entire company seems to be, I shouldn't call it a system because it isn't. There's a very specific profile for a system and that isn't it. The entire company seems to be uh, careening out of control. 
and just about everyone, including the plant manager, feels like they're on the brink of chaos. It's dysfunctional. Dysfunctional. In strongly aligned companies, struggling eyes are rarely a problem because they're rarely hired. They are eliminated as candidates during the interview process. Belligerent applicants are eliminated. They have an attitude problem. Passive ones are eliminated. They're too shy, too retiring, too numb. But in companies in the process of making the transition from so-called traditional enterprise to one that seeks excellence, the struggling eye is typically part of the work landscape, part of what is chronically wrong with the work culture and a barrier to progress, prosperity, wealth, excellence. But I said that wrong because it sounds like it's the I, the individual, that is the problem. Hmm? But the individual is part of that landscape. What are you going to do? Well, one of the things that we say to you is don't move too quickly to teams. Some executives attempt to correct the organization um, organizational, I beg your pardon, organizational condition of struggling eyes by declaring teams into existence. Always done with the best of intentions, the reasoning goes like this. Everyone has strengths. Everyone has weaknesses. If we organize people into teams, they'll cover for each other. Their strengths will cover somebody else's weakness. And supervisors will be freed up to attend to larger matters. And we'll level the playing field and unify the workforce and morale will lift and people will pay better attention to their work and they'll solve their problems and we'll cut costs and improve profits and we'll win, we'll survive, we won't sink, hooray! Yeah, but that's not what happens. That's not what happens. You put people who are struggling into a team and then make the mistake of appointing a team leader or worse, a facilitator. And once the door is shut, whoever talks first, loudest, and or fastest takes over the group. And the result is another form of the dominance hierarchy. Traditional companies already have demand and control, command and control, because that's the only way that you can make sure you don't sink. It is a military operation. So you already have that, and now you're going to have it in teams? Yeah, it's not progress. You may find this scenario is distorted or that I oversimplified it. And in some companies, that may be so. But in others, it really describes to a T the dynamics of so-called team-making. Teams are announced, not created. People are left to fend for themselves within the so-called team framework. Even when companies proceed to teams with care, supported with training and coaching, the resultant teams often don't address the underlying cultural imbalances and dysfunctions. Hmm? That imbalance produces a widespread sense of instability, low control, disempowerment. These are workplace constants. They're constants and symptoms of a workforce that's overpopulated with struggling eye. And, of course, these are almost always the the kind of people I work with when I'm invited to come in. Honestly, they don't frighten me. They are exactly ready for visual conversion. If management has wisely said, and wisely understood that visuality aligns, that a visuality relieves the struggle, that visuality effectively implemented allows people to be themselves and to enroll in moving forward as compared to simply adopting an obedient stance. They re- realize these things, and they say, come, come, Gwendolyn, come, help us out. How do you address this? Yes, you should certainly hire for attitude and character, 
That's always preferred. But what do you do with the folks who joined the company 10, 25 years ago before continuous improvement became the rallying point and enterprise excellence the goal? They know the methods. They know the secrets. This is Charlie. They know how to create value in the organization, and they're a pain in the neck or invisible. You can threaten And you can fire them for not aligning with the new best thing. Yet in many companies, maybe yours, this is not possible. Maybe it's the union or maybe it's because of the expertise that these ornery employees possess. Maybe that's indispensable and that makes them indispensable. The wealth of knowledge and know-how. And they know it and so do you. So... The company leadership might think that they're stuck with, my brother used to call it, it's not very flattering, damaged goods. But there are other options. Seek instead a process that focuses on realigning, releasing, relieving the distorted will, strengthen the I, and in doing so, the cooperation of its owner. That's the journey of the I. I spoke of this last week. There are a lot of employees who are not ready for teams. What do you do with them? And for me, what I do is I say, let's not do teams. Let's do individuals. And let's not put in a lot of rules and regulations. You do have to attend the training sessions. Attendance is mandatory. Participation is voluntary because you know what I can't make you learn I can't make you participate but you do have to show up you have to be with us and let's just do something simple let's think about going after the missing information in your work area let's learn about visuality let's learn about motion motion is personal it's my feet my hands my mouth And let's move forward. Next week, I will tell you about the grumblers, the rowers, and the watchers. I'll do a little little story about them. It's very, very interesting. But basically, the message is allow people to participate as they're inspired to. Get to see who people really are without constant prodding, constant surveillance, without meddling. The journey is about identity. Each person must march to his or her own drummer and not to the participation requirements of the company. Not yet. If you are trying to turn around a work culture, this is the remedy. It is causative. Why, you might ask. In fact, I'm sure you are. Would a company allow its employees to decide if they will or will not get on board? To many managers, maybe to you, this sounds like laissez-faire, just let them go, or let it happen, or anarchy. What business purpose could, could that kind of permissiveness serve? The answer is plain Companies that capture and engage the hearts and the minds, as well as the feet and the hands of employees, reap the harvest of a spirited, engaged, and aligned workforce. The future of your profit margins depends on that. I'm talking about a company that isn't there yet. I'm talking about the remedial intervention called a visual conversion. This is my work. I've been doing this for 35 years, longer than that. But I daren't say that because you'll start doing the math a long, long time. And this is the way we shift the culture. When we ask the struggling eye to take and maintain control over their corners of the world by implementing the visual wear, a border address and if possible an ID label for everything that casts a shift, shadow. That is the physical change protocol. It is knowable. It is doable. Bit by bit, tool by tool, part by part, shelf by shelf, struggling eyes, gain control. 
they gain some control, some power over their work area, and as they do, they grow. What do I need to know that I don't know right now? We ask employees, we give them a very, very clear map of where we're going. And if they want to hesitate, it's okay. No one is even going to notice it. Ask you to explain yourself. We take that as a given that some of you are skeptical, maybe even cynical. It's okay. Because we know the power of the methodology and we know the power of teaching language, the language of visuality. Now, I want to make it clear. We, when we invite employees to follow their own lead, their own preferences, this is exclusively in reference to visual improvement activity. There's no such invitation made in reference to production performance. You cannot, we cannot, we do not tolerate any slackening of the workload, quality or delivery requirements. Those demands are as uncompromising as ever. They do not waver. What becomes elective for the employee at the start of this conversion, when you're trying to get a grab on the culture, when the culture has been so difficult to grab, to engage, is that we let people make decisions that are small decisions and let them own that. Any opportunity that lets individuals show who they are and what they want when the pressure is off is extremely valuable. Seize it. Give people the rare option to participate in improvement based on their own personal preference, their own inner calling. Allow them the right to find and reclaim their own will. I wonder if you know how completely I mean this, this is what I do. And the people who have learned with me, this is what they do. They back off. They do this first step. People have to show up with their reluctance, authentic. And then some do and many watch and some don't. This is not as radical as it sounds. People always exercise that right to do or not do, to show up. They show up, but do they bring anything else with them? Do they bring their resources with them? They show up. They comply. But do they initiate? Do they own? They show up, and they'll be passive. And you'll say, see, they're not interested. But that's not it. They're trying to figure out where their will is. And right now, the only thing they're sure of is that they want to proceed very cautiously. It looks like not at all. It is almost like pretending to not be involved. It's okay. Hmm? Pale results, perhaps, by comparison with what is possible. So we have this, what do you need to know? And people get control. The methodology is very clear. It's crystal clear. The steps are crystal clear. After learning about visuality, this is operator-led visuality work that makes sense. You can get my yellow book on the website, visualworkplace.com. I keep forgetting to tell you. Visualworkplace.com. It's a great book. We turned it into an online training system. It's in Spanish as well. I live and breathe this stuff. This is my work. From that, we go. We open all the other doors. We create stability on the shop floor, and then we open up all the other doors, as that stability requires more from the rest of the organization. Companies are often grateful for pale results in the face of the alternative, which is nothing. And we notice those pale results. More is possible as the will of more and more individuals are more fully engaged is more fully engaged when people have to they do they obey when people want to they create and when they create they feel purpose pride satisfaction even joy when people can find themselves at work and find themselves in the change they own deeply when they identify when they identify with the change not only are the results theirs, 
but the change is theirs as well. This journey, this progression of the struggling eye to the strong eye, the shift happens when a person is asked to apply the need to know and succeeds in gaining control over the corner of the world. A person finds a sense of safety, sanity, stability. And once that control is established, something very beautiful and natural happens. The person who now has control turns to others and says, how may I help you? I'm in control. I'm good. I own. I excel. I got it. How may I help you? What do I need to share? That little bit of margin that happened as the stress began to dissolve, the person grew into it. What do I know that you need to know, that I need to share so you can do your work? This is the shift to phase two. Phase two, the second stage of the journey. People build on the security that they gained as they got control of their corner of the world. And they found that they could afford to think of others, and they do. And you have leaders. They're self-leaders. Become your operators. Servant leadership. It's extraordinary this happens predictably. I've been doing this for 35 years. This is the model that evolved, and I documented it. I didn't make it and then do it. I documented it because it happened. Oh, my goodness. This is a, this is a model. The resulting visual solutions from what do I need to share answer the questions that others have in their work area. They address other people's motion, the motion of internal and external suppliers, internal and external customers, coworkers, and managers at this stage of workplace visualities. Visuality. Individuals have already aligned their personal will with the interests of the corporation, and they serve in the role of informal leaders. The benefits for the corporation are huge. From patience to forbearance to contribution. Both phases of this journey happen through simple, subtle, but powerful changes in focus. We're cultivating one of the most elusive aspects of the enterprise on its way to excellence. We're cultivating the individual will. We're making not just a friend out of it, but an ally. There is a wide range of ways in which people express their involvement. A wide range. We have to allow them to be themselves, whatever that self is right now. We're not asking for changes before you come into the training room. We say, bring yourself into this process. That is not only good enough. It is what we celebrate. Mm-hmm. So we're looking at getting rid of information deficits and struggle, mistakes, and wandering and wondering, microscopic waste. And when it's reduced, when it's eliminated, the impact is macroscopic. Productivity rise. Many, many of our clients, many, many cells achieve 15%. If it isn't 15%, there's something wrong, even in lean cells. Many achieve 30. Used to be that an Australian group in Sydney, bunch of engineers, they topped out at 34%, but Mexico succeeded them a few months ago with a cell achieving a 42% increase. And this was not a crippled cell. This was a productive cell. And the operators there say, we're, we're capable of more. Get out of our way. Hmm? Get out of our way. 2000, oh gee, I have that over there. I can't quite reach it. Do I have it close enough? I could read Lizzie's numbers. Maybe I'll do that next week. 2,126 implemented improvement ideas. Hmm? This is the power of the eye. People don't enroll in your vision, they don't enroll in your journey. They see enough in your journey that is like their journey, their vision, and they say, okay, I'm going to do, I'm going to join you because you're doing what I think 
is right. You are close enough to my description of good for me to flow in with you. But they don't get inspired by your journey. They feel the alignment with theirs. It's a, it's a subtle, powerful difference. Hmm? That's the way it is. Motion disappears. It evaporates the instant you put a visual device in place that holds the answer to the information deficit that triggered your motion. It is your device. We will show you hundreds of them. Work That Makes Sense has 900,000 examples of visual devices with a logic. People look at them, they understand how it works, and they understand the state that preceded it, the motion that triggered it. They understand these things. Starting so simple. Remember last week we talked about I need to know where my pliers are. That's eating my lunch. I don't care about a theoretical best. I want my pliers. I want to find them here. I'm going to capture that in a visual format, that spot. And the next time I need my pliers, that's where I'm going to look for them. And it's highly unlikely in this place that they'll be there. But I'm going to have a victory nonetheless because when I look at that spot and my pliers aren't there, I'm not going to spend 45 minutes thinking that they are somewhere. I will know that they're missing. I don't have to ask anyone. I know my pliers are out of control. I know it. Man, I'm in control. Where are my pliers? What am I supposed to make today? How many am I supposed to make? By when do I need to be done? Who will be picking up the units? Who's working with me today? Which parts am I supposed to use? What's today's, this is all manufacturing, today's bill sequence. This is easy, easy to do in any field. Do it. Do it in the office. You've got parallel questions. What are the quality specs? Which fixtures am I supposed to use? Where are those fixtures currently located? Who is my supervisor today? Where is my supervisor today? All this is need to know. Need to share. I need to share what I'm making, how many I'm making, when the cycle will be complete, when it's actually done, where I put the defective or questionable output. I need to share which parts I need next, which fixtures I no longer need. So you can use them with special tools I'm using now and when I expect to be done so you can use them. I need to share who my backup is. So if I'm not here and you need me, you'll know who to go to. And yes, hour by hour, my production output, but also the problems. I need to share with the next shift. This is the huddle. We've done a bang-up job with the huddle. We'll get to that in our conversation. Operators need to know where their pliers are. The CEO needs to know what, or the site manager needs to know what the material consumption rate is, which is more important question. Well, both of them are very important. You see? You see? And then once that control is achieved, it's so natural to say, how may I help you? Oh, I meant to give you... I'll do this next week. I meant to give you the pocket memo exercise. I'll give it to you next week when we talk about the grumblers. I, you know, I'm really good at my work. My senseis were Shigeo Shingo in the 1980s and Ryuji Fukuda. Their languaging and their expertise were mother's milk to me. I'm really good at schedules. I'm really good at visuality. I'm really good at my work. And I'm spending time on the cultural aspect because if you don't get this, you're going to use visual devices as point solutions and they will disappoint and you'll miss the big opportunity of creating a language. Last week I read you a poem that I like a lot. I'm going to read one this week and I put it somewhere special here. Pardon me for rattling my papers. Oh, where is it? Darn it. I think I know this by heart. Oh, is this it? Here it is. This is also by Gerard. This is Gerard Manley Hopkins, who was a priest. But oh my God, what a poet he was. He was this fiery priest. He had this volcanic sensorial life. And he wrote this great poem. I used it, in the, I think, in the front of um, one of the books. 
it goes, it's called As Kingfishers Catch Fire. Get the colors here. And this is about the eye. It's best done in a Scottish accent or an Irish one, but I have neither, so bear with me. As kingfishers catch fire, as kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame. As tumbled over rim and roundy well stones ring, like each tuck string tells, each hung bell's bow swung, finds tongue to fling out broad its name. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same, deals out that being, indoors each one dwells, selves goes itself, myself it speaks and spells, crying, what I do is me, for that I came. Deals out that being, Indoors each one dwells, selves goes itself, myself it speaks in spells, crying, what I do is me, for that I came. It is ineluctable. We are down to the core element, the I. Don't neglect it. You can go somewhere without it, but not far, in yourself and in others. Hmm? I had a wonderful wonderful time talking with you today in, in this uh, third part of the series of Hero Within. We'll do one or two more. I want to talk to you about supervisors. But next week, we'll do royal, uh, Rowers and Grumblers, and I'll give you a little exercise if it seems to fit the feel of that particular show. Visualworkplace.com is our um, website. Radio at Visual Workplace uh, is... The email if you want to be in touch. Thank you for your cards and letters. We love it. Please uh, come back next week. Please tell us what you think. Tell us what you want. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth. I'm signing off and I say, let the workplace speak. Thank you for joining us this week at Visual Workplace Radio. Tune in for another episode next Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, with your host, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, on the Voice America Business Channel. Let the workplace speak.